following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning. My name is Sissy, I'm one of the pastors here. So glad you're with us this morning. A special welcome to those of you in the room. I feel like you deserve a pat on the back just for making it through the construction and the roadblocks to get here, so way to go. And a warm welcome to those of you joining us online. So glad you're worshiping with us this morning. We are in the second week of a series that we're calling for the sake of the world. We live in a world filled with adversity. And each one of us has experienced our own share of pain and turmoil and struggle. And what we all really need is hope. And that hope can only be found in Jesus. Jesus' final words to his disciples before he left this earth were these. You will be my witnesses. You will, sorry, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As followers of Jesus, we are empowered by the Spirit to bring the hope of Jesus to the world around us, from our closest neighbors to the very ends of the earth, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And last week, Barry shared with us that we're to begin right where we are, that we're to live our everyday ordinary lives with a missional purpose. But Jesus' command to be his witnesses extended from Jerusalem to Judea, from our neighborhoods to our city. And so this morning, we're gonna be talking about what it means to bear witness to Jesus by serving our city. And this is something that the early church did so beautifully. Soon after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, the church is formed by the power of the Spirit, and, and it begins to grow rapidly as the apostles and the believers share the gospel with those around them. But it doesn't take long for persecution to break out, and so the believers are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But what's so very remarkable about these early Christians is that they begin to share the hope of Jesus and they dramatically and powerfully impact their cities in extraordinary ways. They brought the hope of Jesus to a world filled with hardship and cruelty. In this day, cities were extremely crowded. Housing was cramped, water and sanitation was limited. Combine that with the overcrowding of people and animals and You can imagine the filth and the disease that quickly spread. That also brought with it very high mortality rates. Ancient cities also had a higher proportion of newcomers, immigrants, and refugees. And so they really were communities of strangers. And they were also far more crime-ridden than our cities today. So it's into these harsh, cruel, even brutal conditions that the early Christians responded to the suffering of the world around them with the hope of Jesus. Sociologist Rodney Stark writes, in the midst of the squalor, misery, illness, and anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. Foremost was the Christian duty to alleviate want and suffering. 
In the pagan world, and especially among philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect. This was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that mercy is one of the primary virtues, that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. Moreover, the corollary that because God loves humanity, Christians may not please God unless they love one another was even more incompatible with pagan convictions. But the truly revolutionary principle was that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and even those of faith to all in need. Aristides was a philosopher in Athens who wrote a defense of Christianity to the emperor in approximately 125 AD, just 90 years after the church was formed. And in his defense, he describes the early church in this way. They walk in all humility and kindness, and falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from the widows, they do not turn away their countenance, and they rescue the orphan from him who does him violence. And he who has gives to him who has not without grudging. And when they see the stranger, they bring him to their dwellings and rejoice over him as over a true brother. For they do not call brothers those who are after the flesh, but those who are in the spirit and in God. But when one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them sees him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear, if any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it's possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. And if there is among them a man that is poor or needy, and they have not an abundance of necessaries, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. In the year 98, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, advised Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, to be sure to provide special support for widows. In 251, the Bishop of Rome wrote a letter to the Bishop of Antioch where he shared that the Roman congregation was supporting 1,500 widows and distressed persons. Historian Paul Johnson puts it this way. The Christians ran a miniature welfare state in an empire which for the most part lacked social services. Tertullian was one of the early church fathers and speaking of the Christian witness to Roman non-believers, he said this, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look at how they love one another. These early Christians had a powerful impact on their city. The early church revitalized uh, life in, in, in Greco-Roman cities in revolutionary ways. But how did they make such an impact? And why would they live this way? Because it's one thing to give out of abundance, but these early Christians, they fast two or three days to give to those in need. So how did they do this? And why did they do this? To answer the question, how did they impact their city, I wanna offer you an equation. Many of you know that I have a background in finance and accounting, so I love a good equation. I never thought I could work one into a sermon, but here we go. <laughs> now, some of you are sitting here and you're math lovers, and you're like, yes, this is awesome. But the vast majority of you are twitching in your seats because you're brought back to ninth grade algebra class. So I'm sorry, but stay with me. Okay, here it is. 
radical generosity plus radical compassion equals radical service. The early church impacted their city in powerful ways through the practices of radical generosity and radical compassion. And so this morning, I wanna take a look at these two practices by looking at two scenes from the life of the early church. And then we'll answer the question, why? Why did they live this way? And then finally, we'll close with some applications for us today. See where we're going? All right, let's jump into it. Acts 4, uh, picking up at verse 32. And here we see uh, how they did it through the first practice of radical generosity. Acts 4, 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Two observations about their practice of radical generosity that we see in the scene. Here's the first one. Their generosity was a result of a new sense of community. The gospel was so compelling and powerful in a world that was often brutal and indifferent to the suffering of others because the gospel creates a new sense of community. There was a sense of solidarity and unity and concern for others that was not only transformational to their community, but to the city itself. This new sense of gospel community meant that when needs arose from outside of their community, they didn't say, it's not my problem. I got my own problems. I don't have time for their needs. No, instead they said, their needs are my needs. Their suffering is my suffering. Their pain is my pain. And Anytime there was a need, people who had an extra field or a home would sell it and give it to the church for those who had need. This was a community who lived out of a new freedom so that instead of using others to get the things they loved, they used their things to love others. There was a sense of a common bond that caused them to practice radical generosity because they recognized that they were all weak and needy before God and that it's the love, forgiveness, and grace of Jesus that made them, that forged them into a new community. Their generosity was a result of a new sense of community. But secondly, their generosity was a result of a new identity in Jesus. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. That word claimed could be translated uh, to make a mental calculation or evaluation of what you own. It's an accounting of your worth. No one valued their resources as defining who they are. Their identity wasn't tied to their possessions or their money. Christian Smith is a professor of sociology at the University of Notre Dame. And in his book, Lost in Transition, he states that people, especially in Western culture, view uh, money and resources, their possessions, in individualistic terms. Because a fundamental belief in our culture is that what we earn defines who we are. 
that we each have uh, some vision of the good life that we believe that we're entitled to, and that's what gives us a sense of worth. And so this could play out in two ways. Either you have a consumer mentality, and so uh, where, where what you have is who you are. And so you spend excessively to get more and more stuff. Or you have a self-protection mentality where you save excessively. You're overly frugal or careful with your money because your security is not found in Jesus. And, and rather, what you try to do is you try to control and secure your future by building up your bank account or your 401k. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't spend your money, nor am I saying you shouldn't save your money. Both of those things are good and necessary. But when we find our security and our identity in our money, or in our possessions, rather than in Jesus, we become slaves to those things. Instead of owning our stuff, our stuff begins to own us. And that's slavery. But here we see the early church recognize that they are secure in Jesus, and so they willingly give away. They share their possessions. They give to those in need. They die to themselves by letting go of their possessions their need to consume or their need to self-protect. They die to their need to find their security in their resources and as a result, they found their life in giving away their resources. Their generosity was a result of a new identity in Jesus. The early church impacted their city through radical generosity. But let's look at the second practice of radical compassion. If you have your Bibles, you could probably flip over one page, it's one page in my Bible, to Acts 6. Acts 6, verse one. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The church is alive and active, and then here in Acts 6, they're faced with a problem. There's a conflict. The Hellenistic Jews complained about the Hebraic Jews because their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The Hellenistic Jews were Jews whose primary language were, was Greek. And so very likely they're immigrants or refugees. They had Greek roots. And the Hebraic Jews uh, were, were Jews who had kept to their Jewish roots. And so there were language and social and cultural differences between these two groups. Now there's no indication that this overlooking of the Hellenistic Jewish widows was intentional. I think what happened here is that the apostles are Hebraic Jews. They were at the center of power and the Hellenistic Jews come from the outer parts of the empire. So they're sort of on the outskirts of power. And the Hebraic Jews were unaware of the needs of the culturally different poor and powerless widows. And so there's inequity in how the resources are being distributed throughout the community. And throughout the scriptures, we see God defend the cause of what some have called the, the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant. And in this particular scene, it is the need of the Hellenistic Jewish widows that is the cause for concern. Because in ancient times, inheritance or wealth was transferred through men. Uh, men were the primary income generators. And so if you were a widow, you were for the most part financially cut off. You had no financial support or means unless you remarried. And so these women are dependent on the daily distribution of food to avoid starvation. 
There's no food stamps or Medicaid or social services, no kind of welfare system at all. And so the early church steps in. And the problem is that the Hebraic Jewish apostles were unaware of the Hellenistic Jewish widows. They had no familial connection to them. And so when this problem is brought to their attention, they come up with a way to address it. Verse two. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And we need to pause here so I can explain what this means. The way this reads in the English translation, it sounds like they're just waiters bringing food to a table, like at a restaurant. But that's not what's happening here. Uh, Waiting on tables is an idiom for caring for the needs of the poor and the oppressed. There is significant value in the idea of the ministry of the table. In fact, this is very likely the beginning of the ministry of deacons, a ministry that is so significant to our church today. We're so grateful for our deacons, for the way they care and love on our body. And this is the very start of that. Picking up again at verse three. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The apostles realize that they can't do everything. They recognize that they have to focus on the ministry of the word. And so they identify seven men full of the spirit and wisdom so that they might now participate in the ministry of the table. Now again, we see that their compassion is a result of a new sense of community. They have a deep sense of belonging and care because they don't stick to their own. They become aware of the needs of those outside of their community and they try to meet their needs. And their compassion, their kindness is absolutely contrary to the norms of the ancient world because they have no familial connection to these widows. The culture of this day, and in fact, the culture of our day says that you should take care of your own, that you should create a community around people who look like you, who who have similar interests as you. Because we're all drawn to people who are like us, aren't we? People with whom we share the same ethnicity or the same educational background or socioeconomic background or, or political affiliation, and we could go on and on. But here in this scene, the Hebraic Jews don't just care about themselves. They look to meet the needs of the Hellenistic Jews who are completely different than them. They don't speak the same language, they don't eat the same food, they don't share the same culture, and yet the apostles move towards them with compassion based on this new sense of gospel community. But here's what's even more striking about them, and this is the third observation. Their compassion led them to act on behalf of the marginalized by giving away their power and embracing the way of weakness. Seven men are are mentioned here, and they all have Greek names. So very likely, these are Hellenistic Jews. And the apostles are the ones in charge. They've got the power. 
And they recognize that these seven men are uniquely equipped to meet the needs of these widows. And so they empower and commission them to do so. Rather than trying to hoard their power, they give away their power. They move forward not by gaining strength, but by embracing weakness. They're not interested in trying to advance their social standing or status. Instead, they seek to serve and to act on behalf of the marginalized. The early church impacted their city through radical compassion. Do you see the powerful effect that the early church had on their city through the practices of radical generosity and radical compassion? That's the how. Let's look at the why. Why would they live this way? And now to see this, you gotta flip back a page to Acts 4, and we see this in verse 33. Here's what it says. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. The early church witnessed something that was so transformational that it caused them to live in radically countercultural ways. They saw Jesus, the son of God, die on a cross and then rise to life on the third day. They knew that Jesus had given his life for them, that, that they knew that Jesus had given up every rightful claim to the glory and resources of heaven so that they could experience new life. They believed that Jesus, the son of God, entered into our world, that he became one of them, that he took on skin and bones, that he moved in to be with the poor and the vulnerable, the oppressed and the outcast, that he moved in to be with them, that he moved in to be with us. They recognized that Jesus didn't hoard power, rather he gave up his power and he cared for us when we were weak and helpless and needy. And his power was displayed through weakness and service through the sacrifice of his life. They understood, they believed that because Jesus was radically generous and compassionate with them, they had to now be radically generous and compassionate with others. The gospel compelled them to live in countercultural ways. And friends, the gospel compels us as well. Our generosity is a result of a new sense of community and a new identity in Jesus. And our compassion must lead us to act on behalf of the marginalized by giving away our power and embracing the way of weakness. Friends, look at what Jesus has done for you. He met you in your moment of greatest need. He poured his life out for you so that now you can pour your life out for others. And when you see what Jesus has given up for you, when you experience his radical generosity and compassion, you cannot help but become radically generous and compassionate to others yourself. Jesus gave up everything to give us new life. So now we give generously so that we might bring new life to our city. If the early church so powerfully impacted their city, why can't we? What would it look like for the people of Irving Bible Church to practice radical generosity and radical compassion for the sake of our city? And look, maybe you're here, you're watching online and you're already serving our city. That's wonderful, keep going. But maybe you're not sure where to start. If that's the case, let me offer to you four ways that you can help meet the needs of our city. Here's the first one. You can serve by mentoring students in Irving ISD. 
Over 85% of Irving ISD students are economically disadvantaged. Children who are not reading at grade level by the time they are in third grade are four times more likely to drop out of high school. Education can change the lives of these young people. Schoolworks and Academy Four are two of our partners that strive to make a lasting difference in our community by serving children and families, teachers of Irving ISD. What if you gave a little of your time to invest in the life of a young person? A little of your time could make a profound impact in a student's life. What if you served as a mentor? Here's a second way. You can serve by caring for the homeless. Every single night in 2022, 4,400 individuals experience homelessness in Dallas County. Whether we're in the middle of a heat wave and it's 105, or whether we're in the middle of a freeze and the temperature drops to single digits every single night, 4,400 people. One of our local partners, Many Helping Hands, is doing incredible work to serve the homeless in Irving. They feed over 100 people every week, and they also have a day center where those who are homeless can come and find a safe place to rest, to take a shower, do their laundry, and get a hot meal and other necessary items. And a few weeks ago, Barry, Brian Ecker, our executive pastor, our missions team, and I got to visit the day center, which just happens to be located at the old IBC building out on Finley Road. And while I was there, I met Glenn and Eileen Rogers, who are IBCers serving at Many Helping Hands. And Glenn and Eileen are retired, and every Wednesday they show up to serve. Eileen helps cook a meal, and Glenn often drives the van that picks up individuals and brings them to the day center. And I was both encouraged and challenged as I heard of their faithfulness to serve in this way. Because I was in the midst of doing some financial planning for my retirement. Now, some of you are shocked by that. Don't be fooled by my youthful looks. I'm older than you think. But I really was doing some financial planning for retirement. And I never thought about, while I thought about a lot of things, I never thought about ways that I might consistently serve. Because often when we think of retirement, we think about all the places we'll go and, and visit and all the time we'll have for the hobbies we love. And, and that's great. But do we think about serving? I, I hadn't, but that's what Glenn and Eileen do week in and week out. And in what probably seems like really simple and ordinary ways to them, they are the hands and feet of Jesus to people that so desperately need to experience his love. What would it look like if you served by providing a meal or served a meal or, or provided other necessary items? What if you gave just a little of your time and your resources to love and care for individuals who so often are treated in ways that are not in line with the truth that they are image bearers of God, full of immense dignity and matchless worth? Maybe you could serve by caring for the homeless. But thirdly, you can serve those who are suffering from food insecurity. In North Texas, 800,000 of our neighbors, including one in five children, face hunger. Crisis Ministries is one of our partners that assists individuals and families in crisis by providing holistic care to meet their physical and spiritual needs. Joel and Grace George are friends of mine who are IBCers, who jumped in to serve at Crisis Ministries at the very beginning of the pandemic because of the severe shortage of volunteers. 
And during a really difficult season in their life, they decided to give back to others, to use their time to serve others. And so they've been serving just a few hours, one Saturday a month for the past two years because they believe as followers of Jesus, they are called to love and serve those in need. And because of their consistent presence and service, they've built relationships and been able to pray with individuals and families who are going through really hard circumstances. They now serve as key IBC volunteers with Crisis Ministries, really spearheading our efforts there at Crisis Ministries. And Joel shared that he and Grace love that they get to cheer people up and share the love of Jesus in just these really simple ways. So what if you gave a little of your time to serve on a Saturday, maybe by handing out some food or stocking some shelves or in a number of other ways? perhaps you could serve those who are facing food insecurity. But finally, you can also serve as a member of our community care team and assist the city in the event of a natural disaster or crisis. Members of this team are trained to help respond in times of urgent need. So what if you gave your time to help respond to the most urgent needs of our city? All of these partners have opportunities for you to serve right now. And maybe you wanna serve with your friends or your family or formation groups. This is such a great opportunity for you to serve together. If you're in the room this morning, all of these partners will be out in town square right after this service. They'd love to talk with you, to share a little bit about what God is doing in their ministries and to help you find your spot to serve. If you're watching online, you can get all that information. You can sign up by going to irvingbible.org slash serve local. The early church had such a powerful impact on their city because they practiced radical generosity and radical compassion. And friends, if the early church made such an impact on their city, why can't we? Where is God calling you to serve? This is an invitation to step more fully, more deeply into what it means to be a missionary disciple. And this is for all of us. It's for regular people like you and me and Glenn and Eileen and Joel and Grace. What if we began to see the needs of those around us as our very own needs? What would it look like if the people of Irving Bible Church practiced radical generosity and radical compassion for the sake of our city? What would it look like if we flooded the streets of our city with generosity and compassion? What would it look like if we entered into the broken places of our city and brought the hope of Jesus to Irving and DFW? Friends, what would it look like? Radical generosity plus radical compassion equals radical service. Because Jesus poured out his life for us we pour out our lives for others. Because Jesus was radically generous and compassionate to us, we are radically generous and compassionate to others. Oh, that we would be this kind of people. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your generosity and compassion to us that we've experienced through the gift of your son, Jesus. Help us to see the needs of those around us as our own needs and to respond compassionately by giving of our time and our resources so that we might meet the needs 
of others. Now, before we partake of communion together, we pause to reflect on our own lives, to see if there is anything that we need to bring before you. Father, thank you that your word says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your love and your forgiveness and your grace towards us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.